Gracious Father, we, we do delight this morning to sing about your faithfulness, that your faithfulness, as your word says, it reaches to the heavens, that it never fails, it never fades. God, we rejoice to remember of what we have received in Christ, that in Christ, because of him, nothing can separate us from your love, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation, not famine, not danger, not sword, not persecution, nothing can steal us away from you. Father, we pray that in these moments we have to, again, look into your perfect word. God, that you would change us, grow us, make us more like Christ. Father, you you know us, you know our weaknesses, you know our failings, you know our love is so often shallow and it tends to grow cold. So we pray, Lord, that you would use these moments to again draw us back to yourself. Help us to see the glory of you, the glory of your Son in the pages of Scripture, that we would be renewed to worship and faith. And we pray all this in Jesus' good name. Amen. You may be seated. It was spring, but it was summer I wanted the warm days and the great outdoors. It was summer, but it was fall I wanted, the colorful leaves and the cool, dry air. It was fall, but it was winter I wanted, the beautiful snow and the joy of the holiday season. It was winter, but it was spring that I wanted, the warmth and the blossoming of nature. I was a child, but it was adulthood I wanted, the freedom and respect. I was 20, But it was 30 I wanted to be mature and sophisticated. I was middle-aged, but it was 20 I wanted the youth and the free spirit. I was retired, but it was middle age I wanted the presence of mind without limitations. And then my life was over, and I never got what I wanted. I like that poem. I read it often. It, it, It reminds me, it challenges me to look for and to appreciate the blessings and the good things that God has given to me in whatever season of life I am presently in. I like it for that reason. I also like this funny little poem because it reminds me that the clock is ticking. It reminds me that my time here on earth, it is short. And brothers and sisters, that is a necessary reminder That is a thing that we need to remember, that we need to think about often. Because the truth is, one day we will die to be with Christ, or He will return and we will be with Him in glory. But one way or the other, we will all step into eternity. If you have a Bible, please turn to Revelation chapter 14. And as you, as you turn there, listen to a few verses from God's Word on the subject of time. Time. The first is Galatians 4.4, 4, where Paul writes, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. How does this verse begin? When the fullness of time had come at just the right moment, when the circumstances were just as God desired them, Christmas 
Jesus is, is born. The Word becomes flesh. The Messiah comes to redeem, to save His people, to secure their adoption as children of God. And when the fullness of time comes again, Jesus will come again in glory, in power, in strength to rule, to reign, to judge, to bring about the final harvest. The harvest that we see described and pictured here in Revelation 14. But before we go there, listen to another few verses from the book of Ecclesiastes. In Ecclesiastes, the writer makes a very curious statement in chapter 8, verse 11. He says, because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know, I know that it will be well with those who fear God. Really? How do you know, writer of Ecclesiastes, how do you know that it is better to fear God, better to know Him, better to honor Him, rather than running after evil? What does the writer of Ecclesiastes know about God, about time, about life, that leads him to this conclusion? Well, the final few verses of Ecclesiastes reads like this. The end of the matter. All has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. And you may hear that. You may be tempted to say, that's all well and good. But when and where is he? God sure is taking his sweet time. He seems slow as we read these kinds of promises. But no, God is not slow. Peter reminds us, we saw in the book of Second Peter, that God is not slow. God is patient. God is gracious. God is still giving time for sinners like us to come to him. We read in Second Peter 3, 9, that God, the Lord, he is not slow. Not slow! As some count slowness, he's patient towards you, not wishing for, that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. And then Peter writes this, but the day of the Lord will come. It will come. And that is what we see and read about here in Revelation chapter 14. The day of the Lord, that harvest, that final harvest is coming. Now, set the context a little bit. Remember where we've been. Remember where we've been the last few weeks. Uh, uh, in Revelation, chapters 12, 13, and 14, serve as a little intermission, as a break in the action, where God kind of pulls back the curtain and reminds John and us about the big picture of human history, the big picture of redemptive history. And so far, uh, we've seen uh, in chapter 14 in particular, we see the end in verses 1 to 5. Uh, we see and we saw the victorious Lamb standing with His people. As Satan tries to do his worst, where is Christ? He's victorious. He's not in retreat. 
He is standing victorious with his people. Then in verses 6 to 13, which we looked at last week, we saw four announcements. Four announcements declaring God's judgment and blessing. And now for this morning in verses 14 to 20, we see a preview. We see a glimpse of this final harvest, a picture of the ultimate judgment of Christ. And what's so, what's so interesting about what we look at this morning and the verses that we have to consider, what's so interesting is that this text is presented in two distinct pictures. Two distinct scenes, but both of the scenes, as you'll see, they involve a sickle, uh, sickle meaning that harvesting instrument, which I have never used, so I should not demonstrate because I have no idea, involves a sickle. Uh, They both, these scenes, it, it involves obviously this harvest gathering metaphor, and it is all a a picture of the final judgment of Christ. Now, before we get to our passage, we need to take note of something up front. I want you to be aware of a unique interpretive challenge uh, regarding these verses. Okay, so here's the question. Please note this on your outline. Here's the challenge and the question that's going to confront us very soon. It's this. Are verses 14 to 16 describing judgment or a gathering, a harvest of God's people. And that's, that's important. It's important uh, as we think about the first half because it's very clear in the second half of our passage for this morning that the second half is describing judgment. It is describing the destruction of those who hate Christ, of those who reject God. But again, things are not as clear as we look at the first half of this passage in verses 14 to 16. Again, many see the first half as describing the gathering together, the harvest, the good harvest of believers, and many others see it as another picture of judgment. So so that's the question. The second half is clear. The second half is obviously describing judgment. It is describing Christ's victory over those who oppose him, over those who choose and love their sin. But what about the first half? Is the first half describing another scene of judgment, or is this first half a picture of the harvest of the saints? A picture of the gathering together of God's people. And this morning, I am happy to eventually tell you where I land on this question. But please don't land there simply because I do. You must weigh the evidence. You must consider the text. You are sensible people. And so I encourage you to think about this matter in light of the larger context, in light of the surrounding chapters But here's the good news. (laughs) And I I mean this. This is good news. I know I've just thrown a lot of questions and uncertainty at you. But here is glorious good news to grab a hold of. Please note this on your outline. Wherever you land, however you land on the first half of this passage, we can and should agree that all God's people will ultimately be gathered to him. And those who oppose Christ, they will face the destructive consequences of their sin. On that, we should be crystal clear. Christ does not lose his people. Christ does not abandon his sheep. He does not walk away from his bride. They will be gathered to him. And it is also true that the wages of sin is death. 
those who cling to their sin, those who refuse to repent and to turn to Jesus to find life and forgiveness in him, they will experience the horrible consequences of that sin. Paul wrote to Timothy in 2 Timothy 4.1 saying, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus who is to judge. Who is to judge the living and the dead. Of this there is no doubt. Jesus is competent, he is powerful, he is wise, and he will judge according to his righteousness. Now, having said all of that, let's get to the first half of our text. If you're in Revelation 14, look at verses 14 to 16. John writes this, Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud And seated on the cloud, one like a son of man, with a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple, calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. So he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle across the earth, and the earth was reaped. Here we see, this is A on your outline, the reaping of the fully ripe harvest. And the first question that should confront us, the first question that comes to us in this text is obviously, well, who is this son of man? Who is this that is being described? Who is this that is seated upon a white cloud? And and remember that throughout the Bible, clouds so often represent and symbolize the presence and the glory of God. So who is this one wearing a golden crown on his head? Who has the power to swing his sickle across the earth and to bring in the harvest? Well, Listen to what Jesus said about himself in John 5:26. Jesus said, For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself, and he has given him authority to execute judgment. Why? Because he is the Son of Man. Jesus is the Son of Man. Jesus is who we see Pictured here, Jesus, the Word made flesh, Emmanuel, God with us, Jesus, the perfect righteous mediator between God and man, Jesus, yes, is fully qualified, he is wise, he is equipped to execute judgment when the time is right. And as we see here, he is seated on a white cloud, he is, if you will, riding upon and surrounded by the radiance of God's glory, the radiance of his holiness. This should also remind us, if, if, if you've read the, the book of Daniel lately, you're like, man, there's something in Daniel that sounds so familiar to this. And you'd be right. In Daniel chapter 7, Daniel looked forward to this day and saw this, this vision. In Daniel 7.13, we read this. Daniel says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven... There came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all 
peoples, nations, and languages should serve Him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and His kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Jesus is not like any earthly ruler you know. Jesus is not like any earthly king or president or administrator that you or I have ever seen or have ever witnessed. Uh, Jesus is not like any of those. Listen, Jesus never dies. His kingdom never fades. His glory endures for all of eternity. Jesus never gets voted out of office and everyone should gladly serve him. Everyone should gladly come to him and bow before him and rejoice in his goodness and rejoice at his greatness and rejoice in his life giving grace. And so as, as John sees Jesus here in Revelation 14, how does Jesus look? What is he wearing? What does he have with him? Please note this on your outline. Here, Jesus is wearing a golden crown. Now, uh, in Greek, this is a stephanos. This is a victor's crown. So Jesus, there he is with a gold victor's crown. And he has a sharp sickle in his hand, which means... That Jesus is ready to harvest. Jesus is ready for action. This is it. This is action Jesus. This is who we see here. He is the victor. He is coming in victory to take his harvest, to do his work. And so, this passage obviously emphasizes victory. Jesus is the victor. Now, later in the book of Revelation, in chapter 19, we will see Jesus wearing a different kind of crown. In fact, the text will tell us in Revelation 19 that he is wearing many crowns, many diadems. What's a diadem? It speaks of a royal, kingly kind of crown. But here, the point is, he is the victorious harvester, and he has come to do his work. But then... Much to our surprise, the strangest thing happens. I mean, here's Jesus, and he's coming on the cloud, and he is ready for action with the crown and with the sickle in his hand, and then the strangest thing happens. Some angel shows up and starts telling Jesus what to do. Who does this angel think he is? He can't give orders to Jesus. That's not how this thing works. Look again at verse 15. Here's what we see. And another angel came out of the temple, calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud. This is what he says. Put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. Now, don't be too upset with this angel. Uh, this angel is coming from where? He is coming from out of the temple, meaning he is coming from the very presence of the Father. And this angel, he does not come out of the presence of the Father to act all tough, like he's going to boss Jesus around and he has information that Jesus doesn't have. No, he doesn't come so much to speak for the benefit of Jesus. He speaks for the benefit of John. He speaks for the benefit of, of us who gets to read the text and to see and to hear what it was that John heard and what John saw. Okay, please, please note this on your outline. This angel in verse uh, 15, he comes from the temple with a message from the Father declaring and affirming, listen, the timing and the rightness 
the rightness of all that Jesus is about to do. Do you remember at Jesus' baptism, the Father spoke from heaven, and what did he say? This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Things have not changed. Okay, the Father loves the Son. The Father is still so well pleased with the Son. And here he is affirming through this messenger the rightness and the timing of all that God the Son is about to do, of all that he is about to accomplish. Now is the time, as John sees this vision for Jesus to act, now is the time for Jesus to use his sickle. But to use his sickle to do what? To use his sickle to do what? Now we've come to the part where we have to ask ourselves the question, what exactly is being described here? Is this another picture of judgment? Or is this first harvest a picture of Jesus gathering his children and his saints to himself? Okay, so let me unpack this a little bit. I'm going to give you kind of both sides of the coin on this, and I'll tell you where I land. Not that that ultimately matters, but here it is. Okay, so please note this on your outline. Those who see these verses as another picture of judgment, I tell you what, they make a strong and compelling argument. They will, they will say the overall tone of the passage seems to be one of judgment. They'll say that the two pictures work together to strengthen and to emphasize the horror, the horror of facing God's judgment. And, and, and they'll note this. In addition to this, the text doesn't specifically mention God's people in these verses. They're right. So there is, there is good reason. There is good reason to interpret this passage as describing judgment, as describing the readiness of Jesus to fulfill and to act in his role as judge. And there's also good reason to see this first section as a picture of Jesus coming to gather in the harvest of his people, for Jesus to come and gather them home to himself. And I'll tell you, this interpretation, it finds good support in the fact that, and please note this on your outline, in Mark chapter 4, verse 26 to 29, Jesus uses a picture of harvesting with a sickle, like what we see here, in a positive way, as a way to bring in a good harvest. And again, in Matthew 13, verses 24 to 43, Jesus speaks a parable about sowing and reaping and harvesting. And he says that this harvest pictures the end of the age where believers and unbelievers will be separated from one another. And in John 4, 34 to 38, Jesus uses the imagery of harvesting and reaping to describe the fruit of evangelism, the fruit of evangelism, of bringing people to himself. So if you look at these verses here in Revelation through the lens of Jesus' teaching in so many of his parables and analogies, it seems very reasonable that this first scene depicts Jesus as coming to gather and to bring in his children to himself. And the fact is, brothers and sisters, again, I want to take you back to the reality that I, that, I, that I mentioned earlier. The reality is, Jesus will do this. Jesus will bring and will gather his people ultimately to himself. He will bring his people in. Uh, Jesus promised in John 14, 1, telling his disciples, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, look at, look at what Jesus says this. He says, I will come again and will take you where? 
take you to myself. Take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. And brothers and sisters, at the end of the day, this is what makes heaven heaven. This is what makes heaven heaven. The glory of Christ to be with him, to be forever in his presence, to be forever surrounded and encompassed in his love, to be beholding his glory, to be enjoying his goodness. And Jesus will not fail in this. Jesus will not fail to bring his bride, his people, his sheep home to himself. Now, in case you are interested, I do tend to favor this second interpretation that sees this first scene as Jesus personally coming, as Jesus coming himself to gather his children. I think this text emphasizes this, this beautiful reality that Christ himself, he is coming in victory to decisively and to powerfully bring in his harvest that he has purchased for himself. Now, one last thing before we move on to the next set of verses here. It is worth pointing out that our brothers and sisters who hold to a mid-tribulation rapture view, they see that as happening here. Okay, Meaning that in this reaping, in this harvest that is pictured, many brothers and sisters in Christ see this as a picture as Jesus rapturing his church, his people, halfway through the tribulation or mid-tribulation, which is where this text falls in, in, in the book of Revelation. Now, personally, I don't land there. I don't share that conclusion, uh, but some of my favorite people do. But the point is, obviously, if you do hold to a mid-trib rapture position, then you definitely don't see these verses as describing judgment. You see them as Christ calling up his people to himself. And let me just say this as well. If you're like, man, I don't know what any of those words. What is mid-trib, post-trib, rapture, tribulation? What do any of these things mean? Well, please email me at stephen.schultz at harborshores.org. And I, no, I'm just kidding. Um, we're, we don't have time in this lesson to unpack all of that, but... Uh, seriously, man, I'd love to talk with you um, about these things to maybe bring some clarity to your thinking in that. But that that's an important reality for our brothers and sisters who interpret Revelation in that way. So I wanted to mention that here. Now, moving on to this next scene, to this second scene, which is one of judgment, clearly. Look at verses 17 to 20. Here's what we see here. It says, Then another angel came out out of the temple in heaven. And he too had a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar, the angel who has authority over the fire. And he called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle, put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth for its grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city and blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia. Okay, here we see the gathering of the grapes of wrath. And here, again, we see another sickle. We see another harvest. But this one is clearly one of judgment. And while so much 
of the attention from these verses usually focuses on the vast amount of blood that is described in the text as it flows like grape juice in a wine press, we really need to consider the first part of this text. It is, it is vitally important. In fact, we need to see, we need to notice, we need to understand how this whole scene is introduced, how we see two angels here, and we need to observe where these angels come from because it has a lot to tell us. It, it preaches a message to us. Please note this on your outline. This is important. The first angel from verse 17 comes out of the temple, meaning he comes from the presence of God, and he also has a sharp sickle. But the second angel, from verse 18, we're told that he comes from the altar. The altar, the place where we have seen saints and martyrs crying out for justice. And we're told that this second angel has authority over the fire, and he commands the angel with the sickle to gather the grapes for judgment. So, Brothers and sisters, the point is this. The point is, here we see this picture that the time has come for judgment. The time has come. Listen, the prayers of the saints, the prayers of those who were killed for their faith in Christ. Remember those that we saw in Revelation chapter 6, verse 9, who were pictured as under the altar? They were under the altar and they were crying out, quote, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Those prayers are being answered. Those prayers are here and now. They are, they are being answered. These two angels represent, listen, the presence of God and the prayers of the saints, and they are working together in harmony now to gather the grapes, to gather God's enemies together for for destruction. Okay, please note this on your outline. This is important. Many believers see this gathering in verse 19 as the gathering that leads to the battle of Armageddon. That battle described in Revelation 16, 16, and again in Revelation 6, uh, chapter 19, verse 11 to 16. However, and man, I think this is really, really important in light of what we see here and in light of what we see throughout Scripture. Note this on your outline. It's wrong. It's wrong to call it, though, the battle of Armageddon. It's not a battle. It is a slaughter. It is a, it is a slaughter. Jesus is overwhelmingly dominant. Jesus is overwhelmingly victorious. Listen, as, as we look at this scene here, and as we will continue to look at it in chapter 16 and then in chapter 19, there is no contest. There is no back and forth. This is not a nail biter. This is not a buzzer beater. This is not a photo finish. This does not go into overtime. Jesus dominates just dominates. He rules decisively. He judges in perfect righteousness. He judges in sovereign, transcendent power. The outcome of this slaughter, as we see in the text, it is described as a river of blood happening where? Outside the city. Okay, outside the city where defiled things belong. 
where, where, where refuse is just dumped out outside the city. We see a river of blood that splatters as high as a horse's bridle. A river of blood that runs for 1,600 stadia or about 184 miles. This is a picture of complete destruction, of complete annihilation for the enemies of God. Their defeat is bloody, it is comprehensive, it is all-encompassing, and it is final. And in studying this passage, brothers and sisters, we need to see it in harmony with the rest of Scripture. We need to see this truth in harmony with the rest of Scripture. You say, meaning what? Meaning this. God is faithful to His Word. God is faithful to His character and nature. God is faithful to His holiness and to the praise of His glory. And I'll tell you this, what we see being described here in Revelation 14, it was predicted and it was foretold by the prophet Joel some 550 years before Jesus was ever born. We read in, in, in the minor prophet, in, in Joel chapter 3, verse 12, we read this intense description of this same scene. And you'll see the similar imagery that is used. Look at, look at what Joel writes. It'll, I think it'll be on the screens. Joel writes this. Let the nations, uh, let the nations stir themselves up. And come up to the valley of, of Jehoshaphat. The valley of Jehoshaphat is where God delivered uh, the people when, when, when nations were coming to attack Israel. And Jehoshaphat was one of the few good kings. And they gathered together and God delivered them. And there was such an overwhelming victory and God did it all. The people just praised and worshipped while, while God did it all. And so Joel thinks on that imagery and God puts it in his heart to speak and to use that imagery that the nations come to the valley of Jehoshaphat. And then we read this, For there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations, put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Go in, tread, for the winepress is full. The vats overflow, for their evil is great. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision, for the day of the Lord is near. In the valley of decision, the sun and the moon are darkened and the stars withdraw their shining. The Lord, the I am, roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem and the heavens and the earth quake. But the Lord is a refuge to his people, a stronghold to the people of Israel. Brothers and sisters, the rebellious nations will be judged. The multitudes will face the decision in the valley of decision. This is not their decision on God. This is God's decision on them. The day of the Lord is near. The wine press will be tread. The vats will overflow. But in the midst of all this, I love how verse 16 reminds us that Yahweh, the great I am, He is a refuge. He is a stronghold for His people. And... There's something else that we would do well to keep in mind. There's something else that we should think about and remember whenever we come to heavy, sobering, challenging passages like this. Please note it on your outline. God is not embarrassed 
God is not ashamed to talk about and to describe his righteousness, his hatred of evil, his holiness, and his willingness to judge. Have you ever noticed that about God, about his word that he has given to us? He's not embarrassed. He does not ignore hard topics like this. God does not wish that they would go away. God is not persuaded by corrupt theologians and corrupt pastors that would try to conceal and hide his wrath and wish it away. God is not afraid to talk about life and death. God is not afraid to talk about the realities of heaven and hell. He is not afraid to proclaim the truth about judgment and salvation and life that is found in Christ. He is not worried that such talk will offend modern progressive sensibilities. Do you want to hear what Jesus thinks about Revelation 14? Do you want to know what Jesus has to say about this scene of judgment and wrath? He tells us in Isaiah chapter 63. In Isaiah 63, listen, the prophet Isaiah records this prophetic, incredible conversation where the coming Messiah, the coming King, he talks about this day. He talks about this day of judgment and wrath. And as the Messiah talks, he is crystal clear. He is clear that he is acting in his righteousness. He is clear that he is expressing his wrath and his hatred of evil. He is expressing that he alone is strong and able and willing to execute, to bring salvation to his people. He is willing to deliver judgment to his enemies. Here's what Christ says. Here's what we see in Isaiah 63. First, the question is raised. Who is this? Who is this who comes from Edom in crimsoned garments from Bozrah? He who is splendid in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength. Who is this one who looks glorious, who looks powerful? Who is this who comes from the land of the enemy in glory and in victory? The answer is this. The Messiah says, it is I speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. And then there is a second question in verse 2. Why is your apparel red and your garments like his who treads in the winepress? Messiah, why are your clothes red? Why are they bloody? Why does it look like you've been treading in the winepress? And the Messiah answers, Jesus answers, quote, I have trodden the winepress alone. From the people, no one was with me. I trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood spattered on my garments and stained all my apparel. For the day of vengeance was in my heart and my year of redemption had come. I looked but there was no one to help. I was appalled, but there was no one to uphold. So my own arm brought me salvation and my wrath upheld me. 
I trampled down the peoples in my anger. I made them drunk in my wrath. And I poured out their lifeblood on the earth. Jesus is so clear. You will know him as Savior. You will know him as the gracious one who came to redeem and who came to save, to came to wash away your sins. You will know him as Savior or you will know him as righteous judge. You will know him as the one who executes the just penalty that is due for your sin if you continue to rebel against him and defy him and to go your own way. The writer of Hebrews said rightly, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And so as we consider this passage, which is a bloody picture, and you may be sick and tired of hearing about blood, but we need to talk about blood for one more moment because we can't end. We shouldn't end without thinking and talking about the blood of Christ. The blood of Christ that was shed outside the city gates where defiled things belong. The blood of Christ that He willingly shed when He went to the cross to take the wrath and the payment that is due for our sin. The blood of Christ that saves us from the wrath of God that brings us into a right and restored relationship with God. We must think about the blood of Christ. In Ephesians 1.7, Paul writes, In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace. In 1 John 1.7, John writes, But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. Romans 5.9, Paul writes again, Since therefore we have now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. Saved by Him from the wrath of God. Brothers and sisters, if you get anything from Revelation 14, get this. It is so good to be in Christ. It is so good. Good to know Him as the Lord and Savior, to know that we are cleansed and forgiven because of the work of Jesus on our behalf. We're called to rest. We're called to rest not in our goodness. We're called to rest in Him, in His life, in His righteousness, in His death and life for us in the fullness of time. Listen, in the fullness of time, God sent Jesus to be born in Bethlehem. In the fullness of time, at just the right moment, Jesus will come again. In power, in might, in wisdom, in judgment. And the point is, today is a day of grace. Today is a day to make Jesus known. Today is a day to proclaim Him, to proclaim how good it is 
to trust in Jesus and to rest in him. Today is a day to consider what Jesus said in Matthew 11. He, he said, he promised, come to me, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart. You will find rest. Find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. He is so good. Brothers and sisters, friends, if if you're here today and you don't know Christ as Lord and Savior, or if you are running from Him, if you are walking in foolish rebellion against Him, we invite you to come to Christ today. We invite you to confess your need and to call out to Him for Him to save, to reconcile, to cleanse. If you'd like to talk with someone, man, we'd love to meet you at the door, talk with you in the guest reception, talk to you down front. If you don't want to talk today, talk tomorrow. Reach out tomorrow. We'd love to talk to you about these things. We'd love to encourage you in your walk with Christ. He is so good. He is so worthy. He promises to give life and rest and grace to all who come to him. Let's pray. Gracious Father, thank you for these times that we have to read and to consider and to remember what you have done and what is yet to come in the future. And God, we pray that we would live rightly in response to what you have revealed here. God, we pray that today we would all, every one of us, whether we're sitting in this room or whether we're watching online, God, we pray that we would adore Christ in our hearts and in our minds, that we would treasure him, that we would esteem him, that we would worship him. And God, as, a, as an overflow of that, may we be such good ambassadors for Christ who show his love, who speak his message, who call people to find life and safety in him. Father, we love you. We pray you would be honored now, even as we sing one more song together as we leave this place. May you truly be glorified in our lives. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand as we close singing together of our joy and confidence in Christ.